Hi, this is John Mulder, Executive Director of the Trillium Institute, along with Jason Beckrow, welcoming you to Palliative Matters. We are palliative doctors who treat patients and families who are dealing with difficult medical journeys. We'd like to share what we have learned along the way. How are you doing today, Jay? John, I'm doing great. Always a pleasure to be with you and discuss these important and meaningful topics. Yeah, it's always uh, stimulating, and uh, one of the fun things is we sometimes never know where they're going to go, but they always end up with something that we find to be particularly intriguing, interesting, and hopefully helpful. What I wanted to talk about today is you shared with me a reaction that one of your families had to some of the work that you were doing. And, and it just, it really struck me in a positive way that might generate some discussion. I'm wondering if you could share with our listeners that particular vignette. Absolutely. So let's say a few weeks ago, I was actually driving home and a uh, colleague, a nurse practitioner who works a couple states away, called me. Her family was back in the area where I practice. It was describing the situation of her father. Uh, knowing that her dad was starting to have more medical needs. Father's goals were to have sound medical care, but not necessarily when the, the time came, knew that they didn't want you know certain levels of, of care, the, did not want to be in the ICU, did not want to be on mechanical ventilation, things such as that. So they were kind of like not sure if hospice is appropriate now, it certainly may be at some point, but mom and dad definitely need help now. And and can you help us? So I described our various service lines. Many people are familiar with hospice care, but I also described our palliative medicine service as well, as well as our house call service for, which is basically primary care uh, in patient's home. Once the patient is in a situation where just getting out of the house to get to doctor's appointments is a challenge, that's when uh, house calls oftentimes is, is very helpful. So as I described our myriad of services, what really struck me is she had this kind of like aha moment where she goes, wow, what you just described is exactly what we need. And I realized it was just, you know, in discussing the combination of services. And that was kind of enlightening to her. Right. And I love that. What you described is exactly what we need. I have found sometimes when I would be doing a hospital consultation and the setup was, Dr. Mulder, could you please go talk with this family? They really need hospice and they're absolutely refusing. Mm -hmm. So I would go in, I'd introduce myself. And of course, I understand the diagnosis and I would ask them, tell me what's going on. They almost always knew what the diagnosis was. And I say, wow, that really sounds like it's presented a lot of challenges for you. Can, can you share with me some of the challenges that you've had as a result of having this diagnosis? And that usually produces some litany or list of issues. And it might be symptom issues. It might be you know pain or I'm having this nausea or breathing issues. It might be some logistic challenges. I really have a hard time getting up and down the stairs now. Or it might be caregiving issues. I still have to go to work and I don't know who's going to take care of my husband when I'm out of the house. And so what I would say, well, let me offer some options that might be useful to you. We can have a nurse stop by to uh, regulate meds and to be really on top of how we're managing these symptoms. I can have an aide come out and help with bathing and maybe that would help some of the challenges of the caregiving. We can have a volunteer come out for a few hours now and then when you're at work so that you don't have to worry about being here. We can have the social worker come out and, and help with the you know, navigation of some of the other challenges that you've mentioned and getting additional resources in. 
And so we kind of go through those things and they, their eyes tend to get bigger and says, wow, that would be great. Can mm-hmm. you provide that? You, you can provide, you know, these people. And I would say, yes, all of these services and resources are provided under the hospice benefit. I usually will pause just to see what their reaction is. And then I would typically say, you know, I'm not sure what your experience with hospice has been or what you might expect it to be, but what I've just described to you is what they do provide. Quite frankly, in your circumstance, I'm not sure that there's a downside to giving it a try and seeing how they help to support you in this particular time of need with the disease you've got going on and the challenges you're facing. And almost always, when they understand what it is that we do, as opposed to just hearing the word, it makes a huge difference. And I've never gotten those exact words that you had, what you've described is exactly what I need. But that's the reaction that they tend, wow, that would be so useful, so helpful for us. Mm-hmm. And so I think that maybe if we spend a little time talking about those specific services, it would help people understand. One of our other episodes of Palliative Matters discusses in more basic detail the difference between hospice and palliative care. But I think I'd like to spend a little time today talking about the specifics of how that really plays out and what that really looks like with the families. John, you really bring up a lot of great points. And again, discussing the many, many members of the hospice interdisciplinary team. And I I do a similar thing to kind of what you just described. I talk about the concept of having a nurse come to see the patient on a regular basis in the patient's home, wherever home may be for that patient. It could be in the home that they've lived in for maybe the 50 plus years of their marriage to their spouse, could be an assisted living facility, could be in a myriad of of places, but wherever home is, having a nurse come to see them on a periodic basis, kind of the, the concept of rather than going out for care, having the care come to you. A social worker. I am so grateful for social workers in general and the team of social workers that I work with that help our patients navigate the incredibly complex world of health insurances, who's paying for what, if at all, what's covered, what isn't, what are these bills, Um, am I responsible for these bills? I mean, we are caring for patients that are going through suffering in so many ways and not just physical, financial stressors. So again, thank goodness for our social workers and help with that. Spiritual care for those who are so inclined, having a chaplain and chaplaincy team available. And again, in whatever faith or faith tradition uh, that the patient uh, resonates with, again, to help them achieve a sense of peace as they're going through these incredibly challenging times. You mentioned volunteers. Sometimes just having someone to come into the home to sit with mom or dad, while the other party gets to go out and get their hair done, get some groceries, things such as that. A lot of times we'll see it could be uh, the elderly husband being cared for by the elderly wife. Volunteer comes in and and, and grandma gets to go get her uh, nails done and her hair done while someone is there and knowing that her husband is safe. So again, a myriad of team members to build a multifaceted team of support. Um, What I oftentimes uh, refer to as the safety net. And what I mean by that is to the family, what we 
aim to do is provide a safety net to them that whatever shall come, that our team is there to help. And that if something goes bump in the middle of the night, there'll be someone who can um, be there to offer support. And that's one of the best parts of our job, John. I think that we, we recognize that so much of the great work our team does is done by parties other than ourselves. Our job then is to be there to support them, provide that safety net to our teams as they provide it to our families. Um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, definitions of safety net is something that provides security against difficulty. Mm-hmm. And it can be that simple. And I think that one of the things that we do within the realm of our hospice team is to be able to anticipate all of the potential challenges that they might face and to make sure that the family understands that we have the resources to prognostically limited and those sorts of limitations on who can actually get into hospice care. And I think what I want to just expand this to is that there are a lot of folks who can benefit from this continuum of services, but who don't qualify for hospice services. And so I'm going to even share the diversity of resources that come to play there as well. Sure. In the practice that I'm in, what started is, you know, just hospice care has expanded to uh, palliative medicine. So providing a palliative support to patients going through things such as uh, cancer treatments, you know, advanced illness and things such as that. And then again, in-home primary care, uh, we have a program for folks that are practically, we'll say practically homebound, where just getting out of the house to get groceries or get to doctor's appointments is a challenge. And again, the goal is to bring care into the patient's home, wherever that may be. And again, so yeah, John, the goal is to provide a myriad of services to build our working relationship with patients, their families, build a trusting relationship over time. And so for many, just hearing the word hospice is incredibly frightening. So again, we talk about the value of the interdisciplinary team. For patients that are still on treatment, you know, introducing the role of palliative medicine services, you know, ways to palliate the uh, uh, patient symptoms in whatever form, physical, non-physical, emotional, spiritual, what have you, to offer that level of support while they're treating their life-defining uh, disease. And for patients who are becoming less mobile. We're just getting out of the house is becoming a challenge, uh, working to provide in-home primary care. Again, the goal there is to, wherever the patient calls home, rather than them having to go out to get care, we bring care to them. And this is all part of a goal of building a trusting relationship, moving our relationship with the patient upstream, strengthening uh, the trust in that relationship, strengthening the safety net. So that when a patient comes to what I call a medical fork in the road, you know, an acute event, most patients uh, simply have one number to call in the middle of the night, and that's 911, and usually an ambulance ride to the emergency department ensues. Our goal is to give numbers in addition to that to offer support. Sometimes 911 to the ER is the appropriate thing to do from all parties. And sometimes calling uh, that number and having a nurse come to the patient's house may be what is most appropriate for that patient at that time. So again, this is all geared toward what is right for the patient now, which will fluctuate over time. 
And again, that's why it was music to my ears when I was discussing with my colleague the services and the needs of her father for her to have that light bulb moment and say, wow, what you just described is exactly what we need. And we recognize what everyone needs exactly is going to be different. And our goal is to be able to meet them where they are and provide the services that are, in fact, exactly what they need at that time. And I, I really love the image of customizing that because that's really what makes a difference. And it's not just a one-size-fits-all, and it's not a 911 answer every time you know someone hiccups. I was also just uh, reflecting on how important information is, how important communication is. And it brought me back to uh, a situation a few years ago in which a friend of mine had asked me to see his mom who had ALS. Now, we're all familiar with ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease that is, you know, it's a universally fatal progressive neurologic disease that became better known a few years ago when people were dumping ice buckets over each other's heads to raise money for that. But it's a devastating illness. And she had been followed, it's in a different city, and been followed by really what I felt was a pretty high-class ALS team as she was negotiating her illness. But I said, I'm happy to sit down with her. And what I did was just said, I'm going to take this from the beginning, presume that, you know, you, you don't have as much information as you may need, uh, even though you may have heard this before, but I want to start from the beginning. We're going to talk about what happens when you have ALS, what happens to the body, uh, what kind of resources are going to be available to you as you navigate this, uh, this journey, and the types of approaches that we can take to help you with the various level of disability that you're going to have as we get through this. So we talked for a couple of hours. It was with her and with her, uh, her two sons and a daughter-in-law. And it was a wonderful conversation. And at the end of it, she said, this has been so helpful and I feel so much more positive and at peace. Not that she is going to survive this, but that she's prepared to deal with it. And the comment that really resonated with me in, in not, not necessarily a positive way was at the end when she said, why didn't anybody tell me this 15 months ago? It would have been nice to have been prepared for that at that time. So it just really struck me at that time that when we have this level of palliative sensibility, we're we're trying to make sure that people are as informed as they can be about what their disease is, what strategies they might engage to help navigate the course of the illness, and what resources are available to help support them through the course of this illness. I think that so often our medical care system still is stuck in this, something's broken, we have to fix it. And so rather than taking a broad look at the the situation, the consequences, and all the, the nuances of what it means to live with this disease, both emotionally as well as physically, the patients begin to appreciate that particular sensibility, other than just, I've got this broken, can you fix it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And getting back to the time element, why couldn't you have told me this 15 months earlier? We do hear that a lot, don't we, John? And I think that's why we're so passionate about being advocates for the teams we work with in the care that's provided because we see so often patients struggling largely on their own 
families struggling on their own, and there is support that's available. And why we are so engaged into making sure that people are aware of the resources that are there and expanding the uh, the work we do and the teams that we work with. So let's get practical here. And as we wind down this uh, broadcast today, I'm wondering if we can provide some very practical tools for folks to use, primarily in the form of communication and questions that they should ask of their providers. And how do they begin to approach this in such a way as to allow them to get the information that they need? I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that for, for many folks, you don't need a tertiary level palliative provider to be able to get the answers to the questions that would help you navigate your illness, that you shouldn't need a referral to somebody else, but that in fact, your providers may have a lot of the information that you need. And how do we allow patients and families to access that? What kind of questions should they be asking? Yeah, I think, again, just empowering our patients and families to be able to ask for help and support. Ideally, first and foremost, recognizing the important role of primary care physicians. And ideally, the patient has a trusting relationship with a primary care physician. To your point, you do not need to be fellowship trained to provide this level of care. It is right at the core of all good medicine to meet our patients wherever and with whatever uh, support they need. When that's not possible, or maybe in the face of advanced illness with lots of subspecialists involved, empowering our patients to reach out to palliative medicine teams, just for the simple uh, empowering the patients to ask for things such as goals of care, to be able to delineate goals of care, what's most important, what's most sacred to this patient, to be able to navigate, and then they can get plugged in with the services that are available in their local community. So. I'd like to propose to the listeners a potential strategy for getting the information they need to help to make the decisions that they need to make. One of the things I have found in the course of my medical career and uh, talking with lots and lots of physicians over the years is that sometimes they're reluctant to share what sometimes is a very, very difficult truth about an illness that cannot be cured, that is going to progress that may in fact provide some element of debility or disability to the patient. And it's further fostered by the fact that in general, we in medicine do a lousy job prognosticating. And inevitably that question comes up. If uh, patients are told that they have a limited life expectancy, the natural next question is, well, how long do you think I've got? But, but, but here's, here's just a couple of questions that I think the patients should feel comfortable asking their physicians whether they're their primary physician or a specialty physician or palliative physician. And the first is this, what does it mean to have this diagnosis? So give the physician a chance and let them know, I, I want the truth and I want it from you. I don't want to, to, to go on the internet and Google this and trying to find out from all these different sources what it means to have this illness. I would like you to tell me. And related to that, what can I expect in the days and the weeks and the years ahead, because I want to know what's going to happen to me, because then I think we can prepare together. And I think what that does then, it will give the physician permission to be honest, to be straightforward 
and to not have to feel like, oh, I don't know how much I should share with the patient. Are they able to handle it? You know, a lot of times physicians can get a little paternalistic and invoke their own values and their own presuppositions as to what the patient or family can handle. By asking it that way, I want to know, doc, please be honest with me. What does it mean to have this disease and what can I expect in the years ahead? Yeah, because at the end of the day, aren't we talking about patient autonomy? And a lot of that is planning. People want to know if I've got a short clock or a long clock, I may make different decisions. And is that not our responsibility as physicians to help them get those answers? So a lot about this, a lot of this is about empowerment, educating. We talked about anxiety. We talked about, you know, unknowns. Our first uh, responsibility is to educate then empower our patients to make the choices that are right for them at that particular time, meet them where they're at. And uh, in so doing, ideally achieve a state of healing in whatever that may be. And when that happens, again, John, that's why we feel very fortunate to be able to do the work we do. And why we know it doesn't happen for everyone every time. And why we need to, again, spread the word and help our patients with the tools that you just mentioned. And in doing so, what we describe to them will be exactly what they need. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Way yeah. to wrap that up and put a bow yeah. on it, Jay. Well, once again, this time has gone too fast, but what a delight to have this conversation with you, Jay. And we hope that you have picked up a pearl or two that would be helpful to you as our listener. And please join us again for additional episodes of Palliative Matters. Have a wonderful day.